there are two worlds surrounding you. One is the world they tell you about on the evening news. The other is the one they don't. You're listening to the Ian Wishart Investigates podcast, Great Sacks in Berlin, Confessions of an American Spy. I got captured once, I got captured by the Russians. I was at the end of a runway in Leipzig, and uh, I was in a tree. Next thing you know, there's a 357 in my head. Alan Brown's throwing me on the floor. While we were in the middle of the second day of meetings, the Secret Service showed up right, in Auckland, grabbed Cliff and says, get the hell out of here and get out of here now. We sat down in the White House with uh, President Reagan and had the Weinberger and Schultz were there, and I said... The Australian guy was picked up by the New Zealand police. He was deported back, he was sent back to Australia. He was assassinated 48 hours later. He was shot right through the Lincoln head. Episode 3. Welcome back. Steve Dement's tour of duty as a military intelligence officer behind enemy lines in East Germany was coming to an end, but not before he almost started World War III with a drunken attack on the Berlin Wall, as you'll soon hear. In this episode, you'll also discover how this American spy ended up living in Auckland and how trouble followed him around. I'm Ian Wishart, and this is episode three of my podcast, Great Sacks in Berlin, Confessions of an American Spy. And this chapter begins with Steve wondering who he can trust. What was interesting was that you never knew, you never, got to the point where you didn't know who was working for who. So one minute you had somebody that you think was 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 the enemy guy, and then you get told, oh, you work with him, okay? And, and you say, well, why am I working with him? Because he's on our side. And so what happened was you ended up drawn into it because you didn't have, there was never a level playing field. Just when you thought you understood your playing field, uh, you had to, you had to, what are you doing? Drink, okay. We didn't have a level playing field, and it would change, and your assignments would change, and duties would change, and you didn't, it wasn't cut and dry. It got to the point where you were no, you were a non-entity. In other words, we, we get issued a, a kit, we call it the kit. Man, it was the most amazing thing you ever saw in your life. I mean, we had all the slick Nikon cameras, we had stabilizing lenses, we had infrared, we had, we had cigarettes that exploded and shot missiles, I mean, you name it, we had all this <laughs> stuff. And it was, you know, and each kit was worth, you know, shit, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you were looking at it, and it was all R&D stuff, and it was all that stuff. And what would happen is, is about once every two months, you'd get called in. And they'd take your kit and they'd say, right, you've got all the erotic stuff, right? That's good, that's good. And then they'd smash it. All this brand new stuff. Smash it up. Put it in this big incinerator and melt it down. And they'd say, here's your, here's your new kit. Because they made sure... That, that you you never got traced back to anything. Yeah. In fact, I wasn't in the army. I wasn't in anything. There was no ID. You know, you, you became a non-thing. And and I almost felt better with the other guys across the, on the side of it, on the on the Russian side of the equation, because they're in the same boat we were in. You know, it was a little bit scary. And and there was this sort of understanding, which is why that guy gave me a short timers calendar. You know, he yeah. said, Mike, you know, the bullshit is over for me. You still got to do your time. You know, he understood. So yeah, you can get drawn into that real easy. You can also get drawn into after work. In other words, when you get out, you get contacted. I say, we've got a great job for you. Fortunately, uh, you know, I turned it down and, and, it, and, it, and it passed me by. But you know, yeah. they want you, that's it. Don't forget, you've done stuff there that they can hang you for. Yeah. 
Did you work in teams or? Yeah, we had teams. We had teams. We had. Um, we would deal with other. We would do with co-ops, uh, which were like East Germans, the guys that were working for the, for freedom and stuff. It's co-ops. Uh, we would deal with and um, uh, class undercover stuff. The guys that were scared were the ASA. Uh, it was the uh, American Security Agency. Now they weren't. They were the electronic side of the deal, and they were nuts. These guys are all nuts. These guys, these guys were bloody scary. Um, because they'd, they'd deal with signals and transmissions and stuff to, and, and links and stuff, and then they'd only get a piece of it, and then they'd set up this whole scenario based on this little piece of nonsense. Yeah. And we used to get sent into the most god-awful situations because they said, oh, it's not a big deal, but they're going to have this little set of maneuvers over here in Leipzig, and you should go and check it. Shit, it was like 10 goddamn divisions, you know? <laughs> 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 you know? <laughs> Over the hill, but we, but our, our, our think our, my strength was, or our strength was, is that it really was like if, let's say we're on tour, and our target is a is a, an army base, and it's a big mother, and it's got a landing field, and it's got tanks, and it's got rolls of stuff, and, and stuff, and it's got barracks, and all this sitting. There's a gate here to get in, and there's a gate out here to get out. Is that we would do is actually go in, ten thousand miles an hour. Slam through the gate. I mean, this is very overt. Slam through the gate. Go down the road. We've got guys on each side taking cameras. Okay, we do it at night. They're shooting away, shooting, 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 going like a bat of hell over the place. Meanwhile, they're chasing us everywhere. Going like a bat of hell. Slam out of there and get out there, out the hill. So what we did was, is that if we had a barracks, we looked at that barracks and said, how many lights are on? Yeah. Times how many rooms and how many to a room? And you could do a count. So you say, well, son of a gun, they only got 10% of the people that they need to run all this equipment, or the other way around. They got, there's no equipment. And then you could just sell, you can look at the tanks, say how long they moved, have they moved, haven't they moved, yeah. okay? And then you could, you start going through this whole scenario, okay, of, from this real flash room. And, and normally you were lucky. The time we get unlucky is when they actually managed to get this barrier up. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help. No. Because you get tense. I but the problem is, is that all they can do is harass you to a degree, but they can't do much more except notify the Russians. Okay, because we're still diplomatic. We're not where we're supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. And and, and we've we've had windows blown out and stuff um, that would go on quite often. But um, yeah, you didn't. That was that was a lot of the work that we did. It's not the typical spy work, but yeah. that was because of the make of what we were. And don't forget, in Frankfurt and West Berlin and West Germany, the Russians were doing the same thing. Yeah. You know. And we had pictures that we had actually people taking pictures of us doing that in East Germany, and and, and, and they had, we had pictures of the guys in Frankfurt doing their thing, taking pictures of us while we're taking pictures of them. I mean, it was um, it was a circus. Yeah. Um, did you form any sort of uh, I don't know? Do you work? At in a, in a buddy system, the two of you would normally work together, or are you normally working on your own in a situation? I keep you alone, so you don't actually have to have that. My, my best friend was was my best man. 
okay, and his name was Robbie Zillmeyer. We went to school together in Manchinette, this little tiny town, for us to end up in the same place at the same time. Now, Zellmeyer, we we were often noted, we were noted for being, being relatively insane, we were crazy, because when we, we, we didn't really give a stuff, you know. One night we decided that the Berlin Wall had to go, you know, that, that was, there was just too much bullshit around, it just had to go. So we took down about six cases of champagne and shook the bottles up, really, when we threw them over the top so that when they hit, they exploded and set off the mines. They were going bananas. We're being attacked. You could hear them. All of the war things are going up and everything. I'm just two drunken yanks on the other side throwing bottles of champagne over the wall. Ziggy was my best friend. He was my very best friend. And... We, we, he met his wife there, so did I, and and, and we stayed friends. And I, and, you know, I just saw Ziggy when, when I was back in the states. Ziggy was just an amazing guy. He was one of those guys that you knew he was. He would. He, we stuck together and everything, especially like that when we went to that that E that uh, E two G two meeting where they said, okay, you've got to take all the officers' wives on in this bus. Okay, and here's your loaded forty five. And it was Zellmeyer, and I was sitting there going. She's got to be kidding. We only need one bullet. That's for us. <laughs> and we're sitting there going to think, and here's your map. And I thought to myself, why don't we just copy the bastard and give it to the Russians? It'll happen quicker, you know. <laughs> so, anyhow, th- yes, and we were friends afterwards. And then Zellmeyer, um, he was a good friend. He was a good friend. And, and, yeah, he stuck with. He was one of those guys you could really trust, you know. I appreciate when he took my wife out on my wedding night, but there again, um, he was my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, in my second you came across the Brits. Doing, uh, did you work jointly with other intelligence units, or were you sort of on your own? No, we worked jointly, but with 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 the feeling that that we had to maintain the upper hand. In other words, you 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 shared minimal. But you got as much out of them as you could, and I'm sure it was vice versa. So yeah. there was this sort of relationship, um, and 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 there were some guys in in there sort of like us who just didn't really give us stuff. You know, they knew it was a crock. They knew it was a bunch of shit. You know, and they did it for what they could get away with. We did what you knew that you were a goner. You had to follow, the, go along with what they wanted. You didn't have a choice, so you'd go along with it. And and the British guys were just same way we were. It got to the point where we'd say, well, what do you got? He said, I'm going to the life And I said, well, can you get me a bottle of gray, give me a case of gray monk wine, you know, while you're down there. <laughs> but what would happen is, is that, is that there would, when they got a, the, the force for the French, they didn't want to share nothing. They were the hardest ones to deal with. And there was an arrogance about it. In fact, we hated pulling dudes to the French because they, 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 they'd, they'd hang out to dry. Um, there wasn't the same sort of feeling. I mean, if a Brit would have gotten in trouble, you were in trouble, you know, you could tempt you on each other. But the French, there was, they were just, no, they weren't into that. Yeah. What's scary is, you still remember, you, you remember all the things going on. I mean, we know where the listing post, we know what was going on in New Zealand, we knew the listing post, we knew all this stuff is still applicable today. Did you ever get to become part of the little bloody digging operation over there for the place out for East Berlin? Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I wasn't directly involved, but it was, it, I knew about it. We were there, I mean, 
we we weren't as into so deep that there was a lot of stuff that we were holding secret. I mean, there was a lot of stuff from World War Two. And 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 buildings with, and where there was uh, like death chambers, and I mean, we were there was one building that was under virtually sealed by the Americans, and that was a chamber where they drowned little children. Okay, there was all this sort of stuff. And it was sickening. And there was this underground passages and networks underneath that we had access to because we're in it. And that was scary. And that stuff really scared you because the West you could feel. You could feel it. And, and, and it really got to you. And we, we there's an air, underneath Templehof Airport is, a, is the Messerschmitt factory. That was it. And when, when when the Allies were coming in, uh, they flooded it with all the people in there. And so every time we'd land or take off, you know, you see, you had that knowledge what you were landing on, you know. And then there was nobody, there weren't a lot of people around that knew that. Um, so it does affect you, you know, that gets to you. That um, really, that's. That's hard stuff, mm. um, and and you don't know where you're gonna run across. Um, you know, this guy that was a neighbor. Um, we were short of cutlery. He, he brought our set. Bloody hell, it's all sterling. <laughs> With the big Nazi signature, you know, there it was on that silverware, and it was an officer's grade, you know. Jesus, you know, this is the guy, and this is our next door neighbor. And you don't, it doesn't leave you because you're, you're still in that murky world of World War II. Yeah. You know? Yes, that's very much part of Berlin, mm. the whole era. And, and it doesn't, you don't leave it. I mean, it's still, I mean, to this day, it still bothers me. Mm. That whole, that whole thing is just really scary. One day, we had an assignment, we had to go to the the Olympic Stadium, where the Olympics were held with Jesse Owens. And we went in there because there was this big sort of military band thing going on. Went in there. And it was full of Germans. And when the Germans hear a military band, they go berserk. And I, we stood down there, and, and chills were running down our mics because you could hear these people with, with such verbal and such strength, being yanked up by the simple tune of a march. Mm. And you could hear, what, you know, all of the speeches, and you could hear it all over again. The, the whole thing was happening, and it could have happened all over again, because they'd follow a uniform in a march in, in two seconds. And you realized that you were just that far away from having it happen again, because people hadn't changed. Yeah. You know? That's the scariest part of it. That scared the shit out of us. Um, Going against the Russians was scary because the most of those guys wanted to go home to their wives anyhow. Yeah. Okay, but the East Germans were scary because they still had that. They still believed that they could conquer anybody and everybody. Yeah. Was that the Stasi or was another you guys from that? The Stasi was one. The other one was Volkpol. The Volkspolizei. And the Volkpol was the elite of the crowd, and then you had the Stasi. That was the, the, the secret, the service guys, um, and of course. The, it's like this, though. The, the Stasi wasn't important. If we found a rocket site, yep. you would have you would have a group of Russians that were in charge of that rocket. 
they would not put a German. Uh -uh. And then they had a group of Russians that would guard it, and then they'd have the East Germans outside of it. Nobody had control. The Russians wouldn't relinquish control of anything, not, not intelligence, not anything. So the Germans hated the Russians, hated them. Okay. Now, you mentioned before about the, um, the drugs coming in. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, there was this huge thing. Don't forget, you, when you call orders for an airplane, and we could we could call orders for an airplane. There's no difference when I called for a plane in, in the casino business. You know, it's the same authority. So what happened is if you, if you, you could make a lot of money. You could make a lot of money. As an example, you could buy East German drugs, okay, that brought Turkish drugs where the official exchange rate was four to one, so you had four marks to one dollar. But if you used East Coast, East, I mean, East uh, Dirty ones, like market, it's 16 to one. Plus, you have the ability to fly in air, okay, because you're part of this diplomatic thing. Yeah. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so you had this ability to move all this stuff all over the place. It didn't matter what it was. It could be uh, antiquities, it could be, it could be, uh, uh, black market marks to come out, okay, to bring across. It could be drugs going out. Did you bring up through Turkey? Because there's a relationship between Turkish and, uh, and East Germany. It could it could be any number of things. Weapons, okay. And the people who were most prone to do that were the East Germans because they didn't have that much. You know, they were there. There was an opportunity to make some money, and move stuff around the world, and they certainly had the network to do it and distribute it. Yeah. So there was kind of a relationship there that went on. Okay, to move stuff around. There was these German, um, it's called the Volkspolizei, which is currently the name for the New Zealand police, Volkspolizei. But it's an interesting thing, it's like the New Zealand, it's like the German police, like any other policeman, except these guys had tanks and airplanes, <laughs> you know, rocket launchers. <laughs> you know, they could give you a parking ticket and blow up the neighborhood. Yeah. What was interesting was these guys actually had a diplomatic relationship. In other words, they had a co-op relationship with the police, the Volkswagen in East Berlin, yeah. because they had to have that relationship just to keep control of Checkpoint Charlie stuff. And what's interesting was that there was characters that were in that division, in the air division, that were quite that would work work in unison, and you could just make them up, okay? Because and those guys would get money and support, like from that and documentation. From the U.S. To, to to carry it on. I mean, the whole thing was covert. You could you could make up any number of scenarios, and it would yeah. be worked that way. So it could be a uh, CIA guy liaising with his counterpart in Germany to help do things. So sure. whilst they were on the face of it, um, and for political purposes, at each other's throats, mm. they prepared to deal together in a business arrangement. Oh sure. Secret thing. See, we would bring across, I'm going to give you an idea. My mom, we've got a clock upstairs, and this is a little thing. It's, it's an 1890 Adler gong, which is quite a wonderful piece. I gave the guy five bucks and a carton of cigarettes. Okay, And he wanted to know how many more I'd like to take. Yeah. You know? Um, you could get anything you wanted, you could imagine, and they would fly it out to deliver it to Washington, D.C. It didn't matter. You know, they, they needed the hard money. And as long as you paid them in U.S. dollars, they didn't give a shit. Yeah. Because the East German marks weren't worth shit. Neither were the Russians' rubles either. Okay, so at the end of the end of the day, the only real money was the U.S. dollar. So there had to be a relationship for these Germans to prosper, where they got the U.S. dollar and they could provide the product. I mean, embargo in Cuba, okay, that happened. 
was bullshit. <laughs> because there wasn't an embargo against East Germany, but there was a trade agreement between Cuba and, and, and East Germany. So Cuba was shipping stuff up to East Germany and South America? Yeah. In fact, they only send the invoice up there and actually made the delivery. Okay? I mean, it's the same thing that happened with Tonga. Okay? There's, a, there's an embargo stopping uh, shipments out of Iraq or Iran, but if you put a refinery okay, in Tonga, well, that's fine, because what happens is the product gets shipped over, they process, and they ship it out as Tonga. Yeah. Okay, so everybody wins. So there's another part of that triangle that to this day still exists, and, and, and every part of the triangle. So East Germany is the same. They need to do business. Yeah. Okay. Someone put you down this part of the road. Okay, that part of the road. What happened in my that part of the road is I had a casino. I ran a, I ran a casino, casinos, you know, casino management. Started up in Lake Tahoe and, and started Harris when it was owned by Bill Harris, the old man. And you start at the bottom of the heap, you're like a pack mule, you're a change boy. You know, you worth 40, 40 pounds of change and you pass it up. And then you work your way up the thing. And I worked my way up into management uh, and then went to work for another casino, which was part of the Nugget Group. And um, there were three casino managers, and one had a heart attack, one died of cancer, and the third one retired. So I was promoted quickly into that slot. So it, it was it was advancement by death and <laughs> retirement. <laughs> if those guys hadn't died, I never would have had the chance. So I went into as a casino manager and ran swank shifts and, and did that. I was trained. And that got me merged into that into the casino world. Did that as that in consulting for a long time. And also whatever whatever the owners wanted. But then I made the cardinal mistake, is that, see, the, the casinos were all built with union money and pension funds, whether it was AFL-CIO or Teamsters or whatever, it was, they were built with that money. And there was an agreement that the state of Nevada would never have a union, ever. Well, I formed a credit, I formed a union, because I didn't like what was happening to the conditions of the casino worker. Most of, most of you ended up either dead, drunk, or, or, or you know, unfit, you know, because you can't stay in that environment too long and what was happening to the women. So when I started that union, I not only pissed off the owners of, the, of all the casinos, but I pissed off the AFL-CIO and, and uh, the major labor unions. And I was being offered the opportunity to go and live with Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> opportunity of a lifetime. <laughs> so, not be a camera so what happened at that point was is that I, I had to figure out a way to hide out. So I. I Went, went straight to a truck dealership and I bought the, the biggest Kenworth that they built in a, in a big trailer and uh, went trucking, you know, and I stayed on the road because if you, it's, you, if you stay on the road, no, you, you, those will fix the boat, you have a real hard time finding somebody. This is about the time the convoy was a big hit, right? Yep. <laughs> well, it was. I guess it was to now. Yeah, quite a bit. But see, the problem with our company was not only did we do that, but, but then we, the company I was involved with, the trucking produce up towards the hands, well, then there, there was also all the drug movement that went on. You know? uh, so that was, that was just part of that company. So the, the drug shipments were sort of being moved by the. Rig yeah. Time frame? Well, that would have been, that would have been 80s. Early mid 80s. Started with the camp problem. Yeah, yeah, that was the big, that was the big, 
big one. And they, and they were moving in small quantities either. I mean, this was this was super talking. You know, this is a big truck. This is a tractor trailer rig. So you pop down to New Gallus, Mexico. And from New Gallus, you pick up a load of melons and whatever else. And then you'd fire back up and you'd get up to uh, uh, Lethbridge, which is just across the border. We used to call the angels. And we'd go to Lethbridge and park the trucks. Then we'd go to sleep. And then the angels would take, because they're all women, would take our trucks wherever. And they came back to us empty. Okay, all the photos out and everything handed us the payment for the shipment. Okay, and then we booked it back south again. Okay, back to L.A. And, and then, and then, where we drop. See, we go across the border. We pick up apples or something out of Seattle. Then go to L.A. And from L.A. we drop that. We're dead. We're deadhead with no freight to, to New Gallus. Pick up another freight load and go back up again. We did that two. We had to do that two times a week. Two turns a week. So you got up averaging four hours of sleep every two days. So you know you're goner when you're, <laughs> when you're doing. The was there aware about customs and searches in this mission? Yeah, well, they, yeah, there was. It wasn't really. They would go through a spell of, of uh, obeying the laws and staying serious, okay? and then and then once they'd gone through their bit about health and it was on the papers, so they're cracking down. That wouldn't then there would there was never a problem. And it was almost like, well, we'll start busting people for another week, and then we'll let it ride some more. Yeah. Um, and so it really wasn't all that bad. Um, but what happened was is that there had been a business shipment going up, and, uh, and it was busy you know, at, at the port, at the, at the entry, at the immigration. And a couple of our guys got busted. So I basically, and I was on my way up, and I thought, no, bullshit, don't need this. Okay. So I dumped the truck. Went back home, grabbed my wife, said, we're out of here. So we got to the airport, dropped the car in the airport, and we got on a plane, and that was it. You know, my, and, and my wife is a Kiwi, so, and we brought the kids down here. Um, well, I met her in Berlin. She had shaved legs and shaved arms, fits, and I thought, Jesus, this is, good. This is really good. Well, <laughs> 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 I, I said, uh, wow, she's got shaved arms, that's it. So I said, you're my kind of girl, marry me. And uh, eight weeks later, she did. So that was pretty snap. And then we had three kids. Because, of course, the people you were working for were not even pleased that they lost their lives for the drivers disappearing. That's another reason, yeah. That and the casino part of it, you know, because other things, if I had been a subdivision in Antarctica, I would have taken it, you know? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> So how much um, coke was loaded in the bank of trucks? We never knew. We never knew. We didn't even know what it was. Do they have any... Um, Cover, I mean, was there any cover cargo going on? Sure. They'd cover stuff with peppers, bell peppers, jalapeno peppers, all of the high, high, high smell, you know, has a high, high degree of order to break it out. Because if you've got a load of jalapeno peppers and, and bell peppers and stuff, and onions, it's another load that, that, that go in there. You knew you had a clean load when you had berries. Berries, why? Because strawberries don't put out a strong scent. So if you took out berries or melons, uh, stuff, there's no scent. That, that went on for quite a while. In fact, I'm sure it's probably still going on. But we never knew. We were just, our job was just to make it around. Yeah. So as far as you guys are concerned, you were carrying fruit, so you knew that it was unlikely to be fruit. Yeah. And, and, and that was our job. And then the only way you could do that 
keep that tour going was is you actually, you know, you had to get stoned and stay stoned. We were, you lived on methamphetamine if there was another way to do it, make that trip. And the other thing is fine is you get to the point you're, dis you're disoriented. Was, I'd go into a rest stop and finally get some sleep. You know, I'd pull off completely off the road and get into a rest stop. And I'd sleep. I'd just crash. And then I'd wake up. And I see that road and I say, oh, shit, am I supposed to go north or am I supposed to go south? <laughs> <laughs> and you're trying to remember which way you parked the truck the night before. Um, good pipe? Truck average, well, there's an average truck driver pay, but, but you got to keep, it's hard to explain, but average, on the road you got taken care of really good, but it was never enough to where you could actually make, retire and get out of it, okay, it was enough to where if you stayed on the road, you were, you live comfortably, but the, but if you're trying to send money home and buy a house, forget it, okay, so you were, you were, you were so even though you as the driver took the risk, you weren't giving any risk money, no, if you asked him, he said, look, um, I don't want to carry anything, you know. I just want to carry food. They say fine. Right. Well, do you know if it's in the if it's that loads if you're carrying them or don't you? You don't know. You don't load your truck. It's loaded by someone else in New Gallus. In fact, they load the trailer. Uh, you're sleeping and eating and get ready for the next trip. You actually go in it back underneath the trailer and take off. You don't have a clue what's in it. They hand you a manifest. That's all you know. Manifest says you're carrying paper. Yep. Whatever. And then. So you you know you're actually at that point you know you don't know. So if they say don't worry we're not going to do that you know, we'll, no we don't really do that at all. Then you, you know, all of a sudden two other drivers in the company get stopped to bite the border and you go no sit aren't the stuff on here or not you can't take it apart you're looking at thirty five to forty thousand pounds of vegetables we're going to go through that. So it was it was part of that. I mean that was the world the casino world was of course the that was owned by the. That was family based, you know, and that and, that, and those were all actually quite legitimate. Those casinos. I mean, they actually it was more a nice morality that went with it. So if you, you don't hurt a customer, you keep your employees happy. And it always started to come unstuck when it became a multinational organization that, were, that, that didn't have the same morality. It, it, the only ethic to the big was profit to the shareholder. That was all. That's the whole basis. So we actually ended up with a lot more troubles. Great Sachs in Berlin, Confessions of an American Spy, continues in a moment. He's been shot at, tear gassed, mugged, arrested, electrocuted, and almost assassinated. And he still keeps coming back for more punishment. With more lives than a cat, you're listening to Investigate Daily's Ian Wishart on Live365.com. Talk radio for grown-ups. Coming up on the next episode... He was shot stone cold dead. Then the Iranians, when they found out about it, well, that he had been killed, the Iranians got on a plane and took off and disappeared. We never saw him again. The next thing that happened was is Cliff got a visit from John Connolly, who was the governor of Texas. Okay? The man who was in the car with Kennedy and ended up with bullets inside him that but he retrieved that's, up his That's the guy. Yep. Same guy. He shows up in Nukalofa, okay, walks up to Cliff and says, do it again, even think about it again, and you're not going to live to see grandchildren. Great Sacks in Berlin, Confessions of an American Spy, is an Ian Wishart podcast. Follow Ian Wishart on Facebook or Twitter or through your podcasting service.
Break your 